We start with Vancouver's disposable cup fee, 25 cents for a disposable coffee cup in the city. City Council now doing a rethink on this one. Have a listen to this report now from Global News reporter Andrea McPherson. Plastic cup controversies back up for review at Vancouver City Hall less than a month after coffee shops and other businesses were forced to start charging 25 cents for disposable cups and 15 cents for paper bags as the new bylaws came into effect. This was not part of the agenda on Tuesday, but council was unanimous in calling on staff to take a second look at this. Particularly around equity issues, um, tech delivery apps, Uh, incongruencies, um, uh, loopholes that people are sort of getting around so they don't have to pay the fee, and just general effectiveness of the actual um, bylaw. Okay, all right, let's discuss now with my guest, Vancouver City Councillor Sarah Kirby-Young, and I'm very pleased to welcome her back to the show. Hi, Councillor. Hi, Mike. Good morning. Thanks a lot for coming on. Let's go back to the start of this thing. Did You supported this at the start of this, correct? You voted for it. Right. Yeah, I did. Uh, Council considered this report back in November 2019, um, and originally it was a one-year runway to give businesses notices to adapt, and it was set to launch at the beginning of 2021, and then it was delayed a year further with the pandemic, but I did support it originally. Okay, and what are the problems with the program as you see them now that it's been rolled out? Well, I think there's a number of them that have been identified. One is I think that we were thinking a lot about coffee shops um, and that type of thing. And clearly, quick service restaurants and fast food outlets are a different ballgame. Um, they have not implemented reusable cup programs yet, and it's a much more difficult sector um, to impose this on. The others have been things like impact on people that uh, homeless folks or people of lesser means and feeling the pinch there in terms of affordability. Right. And why did council not see this one coming? Like, why why didn't someone say, hey, what about homeless people who maybe this could be a burden for them? I mean, wasn't this wasn't this flagged for you guys like years ago? I think hindsight's twenty twenty, And I think, you know, I'm going to first to stand up now and say that, yes, uh, there are problems. And I think we're doing a bit of a mea culpa. Um, bringing it forward to have a quick review um, in short order. I contacted the city manager the first week and said, look, it's quite clear some of these problems aren't working. Um, I think the driving force behind it was looking at stats like the fact we get 84 million coffee cups in the city of Vancouver alone that are disposed of every year. And so it's trying to deal with the waste issues, but clearly it needs to rethink. And essentially that's what council has done. They have put staff on notice to come back with some solutions that would warrant either amending this bylaw or having a serious conversation about continuing it. Okay, in that report we just played, we heard the voice there at the end of your fellow councillor there, Sarah Bly, and uh, Rebecca Bly, and um, she mentioned a couple of problems with the with the program, including tech delivery app incongruencies. W- what does that mean? Like, what are the problems with the tech delivery apps? So, in simple terms, it's just how people behave and get their coffee. So, instead of showing up at the coffee shop now um, and just ordering from the person there, the you know the friends of the barista people are ordering their drinks ahead of time online and they haven't adapted to give you an option for a reusable cup so the the uh, businesses could do that and implement a reusable cup program which is what staff are saying you know when i brought this up the first week that's the feedback that we got um i think it's january 12th from the city manager that said they're having a lot of dialogues with a lot of those organizations and if we don't see them implementing reusable cup programs one option could be in the bylaw to compel businesses to implement those reusable cups because that's why the businesses were allowed to keep the revenue from the cup fee to help with the cost of transition. So it's really okay. about the fact that we do a lot of online ordering now. Okay, there's also concerns around loopholes that people are using to get around this bylaw so they don't have to pay the cup fee. What are the loopholes here? Uh, well, I've heard of individual coffee stores have lowered the price of their coffee uh, by yeah. 25 cents, so the price that you pay is the same. And that takes away from the entire point of the bylaw, which is to reduce cup usage. So if someone says to you, don't worry, your cup of coffee is the same price, there's no difference there. There's no incentive for somebody um, not to take the cup. Yeah, like I at Costco in Vancouver and their famous hot dog combo where you can get a hot dog and a drink for a dollar fifty at Costco, which is a famous, famous deal at every Costco. I see in Vancouver they lowered the price of the combo to a dollar twenty five. Plus, yeah, plus that, the twenty, plus the perfect. twenty-five cent. Yeah, plus the twenty-five cents for the cup fee. So it's still a dollar fifty. So it makes no difference at all. 
Yeah, right? that's a perfect example of sort of like bad behavior, the bad actors. Um, and it was a carrot approach versus a stick that you got to keep the revenue and hoping that businesses would be responsible. But when you see those kind of situations, that they're clearly not doing that. Right. So you think Costco is a bad apple. They're a bad player. Yeah, if you are lowering your price, you are um, intentionally circumventing the intention of the bylaw, which is to encourage consumers to change their behavior and stay in and eat or bring their own cup. Yeah, but they, but they don't want to whack their customers with a quarter fee, right? Yeah. So how is that? How is that being a bad actor? Well, I think look, think about a decade ago when you know people were up in arms when plastic bags started to be phased out over time, and everybody's like, "I'm never going to bring my own bag," and we all do that now. So there's going to be transition problems with any bylaw, but I'll be the first to admit that if this is not working and we're having so many exceptions to the rule, that we're going to have that serious conversation about continuing it. I will say that rather than repealing the bylaw outright in the motion um, that uh, Councillor Bai brought forward and working with her on that, that I know this council wouldn't do that. And so this is really an opportunity for staff to come back and for council to have a conversation. That's actually going to be the hot point and the hot kind of the flashpoint as to how council decides to move forward once right. we get that information back. If there aren't enough solutions, it's going to be, from my perspective, really difficult to continue supporting the bylaw, but I really want to reduce waste. I, but um, I think that other councillors absolutely would not have repealed it right now. So I'm just wondering how, how this thing can be fixed. Like, if you're worried about homeless people or people, people or poor people who are, this is a burden for them to pay it, I mean, do you bring in some means-tested program? I mean, how do you manage that? How do you enforce that? I mean, how no, do you how do you enforce how do you force restaurants or coffee shops to to charge the fee if they don't if if they lower their price? I mean, you're going to have bylaw inspection officers going around to every coffee shop in Vancouver checking the prices of their coffee to make sure they haven't lowered it by a quarter. So I'm not like, a fan of complicated regulations, and I'm not a fan of yeah. you know big government intervention. So that either means do you continue with the bylaw? Do you not let the coffee shops keep the revenue? Something simple like that, that it goes into a green fund for the city of Vancouver to look at additional recycling options, additional you know waste receptacles, whatever the case is. But if it gets more complicated, I don't think we want to go there. I think on the homeless piece, I can say that one thing we can do and started with a couple of the shelters where there were issues, is handing out cups to homeless people so that they have those available for them. Why not just scrap this whole thing? I mean, maybe the city council just admit that this thing has been botched and bungled and let's just cut our losses and just scrap it right now. We could do that. And as I said, I, I know this council, and if uh, the motion had been to repeal the bylaw right now, I, I do not think that would have passed at all. Um, But maybe what we need to do is look at a much better recycling alternative around this. Um, One thing I would say, too, is that this sort of disposable waste is coming to an end. We're going to see plastic bags, for example, banned across the entire country in all cities and across Canada by the end of the year. So we're moving in this direction. The question is, how do we make smart policy that doesn't have all of these loopholes? Councillor, thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me, Mike. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the surge in violent crime in Vancouver neighborhoods, including the rise of random attacks in the city. Vancouver police saying there's an average of four a day. Can you imagine that? Stranger assaults, they're called stranger attacks. Four a day, random attacks, random acts of violence by people people you don't even know. The victims don't know who has attacked them. This is happening every single day in the city on average four times a day according to the Vancouver Police Department. Probably one of the most horrifying and troubling ones we've seen to date, that unprovoked stabbing inside a Tim Hortons coffee shop last week in downtown Vancouver. Many people may have seen this very disturbing video of this attack of a man attacking another man, stabbing him multiple times. Uh, it, this is very fortunate they have caught uh, someone, a suspect in this case Have a listen to this report now from Global News anchor Jennifer Palma. A suspect accused of an apparent random stabbing in Vancouver has been arrested and a warning the video we're about to show is disturbing. Earlier this week, Vancouver police released security camera video showing the suspect in the Harbour Centre, Tim Hortons, just after 6 a.m. Saturday. A short time later, the suspect runs up behind a man, stabbing him in the back and shoulder before running out the door. 
27-year-old David Richard Morin has now been taken into custody and is charged with one count of aggravated assault. The victim, a 25-year-old newcomer to Canada, is recovering from serious injuries. Okay, taking a look at the GoFundMe page now that's been started by the victim here, Miguel Angel Zepeda Machoro is his name, a tourist from Mexico. And he has put a GoFundMe up on, and he has raised fourteen, nearly $15,000 here so far. And he posts that he's relieved. He writes, we're relieved to have seen a, a, an arrest here. Hopefully this doesn't happen to someone else. He writes, I sincerely thought I was going to die. This aggression was without any provocation on my part. All right. A suspect arrested in this case, David Richard Moran. He has a long criminal record. Let's discuss this case now with my guest, Brad West, the mayor of Port Coquitlam. Hey, Brad. Hey, Mike. Thanks for having me. Thanks a lot for coming on. First, let's talk a little bit briefly about the surge of violence we're seeing in Vancouver. I mean, this is just unbelievable. I mean, four random attacks a day in the city is is appalling. But this particular attack was particularly horrifying. Absolutely. I mean, just imagine you're going into Timmy's to get your coffee and all of a sudden you get someone out of the blue without even saying a word to them come and start violently stabbing you. Uh, I mean, it, it's just absolutely horrifying uh, for you know your regular person who's out minding their business, going about their day and to be subject to something like that is just so completely unacceptable. And the part that just absolutely galls me is the lengthy, violent, criminal record of the individual who did this. And I am so sick and tired of hearing stories like this where innocent people are hurt and then we find out that the perpetrator has done this over and over and over again and continues to be put back out on the street to hurt more people. I mean, what the hell is wrong with our system that allows that? Okay, let's talk about that a little bit. The, the suspect who's been arrested here, he was found uh, guilty and sentenced to five years in jail for a violent sexual assault uh, back in 2018. So the, the, the facts of that case are very disturbing as well, that he was uh, addicted to uh, methamphetamine, had been smoking meth about eight or nine times a day, and had attacked his uh, allegedly or attacked his girlfriend. He was convicted on this. Attacked his girlfriend in a hotel room, um, choked her, uh, wouldn't let her leave the room, and was swinging around a, a weapon, a, a hatchet in a hotel room. Five years in jail for that, and then he was uh, released or paroled. Dis- and he left a halfway house too. That's right. Yeah, up in in the north, and you know, let's do the math on that. Sentence in 2018 to five years. <clears throat> it's not 2023 yet. You know, why isn't it? I mean, first off, five years is a joke uh, for, for someone who... Uh, well, he got, he, got nearly, he got nearly two years of credit for time served. So, uh, uh, well, there's, and then there's he was, a whole, whole other issue, isn't it? Yeah, well, but, he was released on parole, and then the Parole Board of Canada revoked his statutory release after he disappeared from a halfway house. And... So. and 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 the result of it is gets his way down to Vancouver and completely unprovoked, violently stabs an individual. I, I mean, this is one example. There are unfortunately way too many of, you know, this the 2018 violent offense is just one that goes back to 2012 of a, of a lengthy criminal record. And, you know, these repeat violent offenders you know, just continue to seemingly with no consequences or accountability, be able to inflict so much harm and damage onto our citizens. Uh, and we just seem powerless to stop it. It is so wrong. One of the things, I mean, you know, I think there are problems with the bail system. There are problems with the parole system. We can certainly get into that. And then you've got cases, though, of people who are mentally ill and addicted to drugs. And who knows? I mean, that maybe this, that's the category this guy falls into. I mean, we certainly saw in the earlier case where he was convicted of not violent sexual assault that he's, the court heard that he was addicted to uh, meth. So, you know, when you've got offenders who are drug addicted, they are mentally ill, I'll tell you, 
I talk to cops all the time who tell me about their frustrations. They pick up people on the street who are obviously mentally ill. They're desperately addicted to drugs. They need help. And guess what? There's no place for them to go. They, they might take them in for an assessment to a doctor, and then a few days later they're back on the street. Your thoughts? I, I talk to police in my community all the time. It is incredibly frustrating and, and I think demoralizing for police who are seeing the same people over and over again. You know, the police in this case, they've done their job. You know, they went and, and arrested the individual. You know, but there's a whole other part of our system that has to do its job as well. But for police, I mean, I, I can't imagine the frustration. You know, uh, we don't take good statistics on this in our country, but the studies that I have reviewed show that anywhere from 35 to north of 50% of violent offenses are repeat criminals. You know, it's the, the recidivism again and again, and the system is not able to hold the people accountable, not able to keep the public safe. And so what do they do instead? They put them back on the street. They put them back on the street. There's been very little progress, if any, on any sort of uh, treatment. And so they come back and they re-victimize people over and over again. It, it, Mike, it's broken. Yeah. It is just broken, and it's regular people going about their business who uh, suffer the consequences of it. There's a, it's a multifaceted kind of problem that you could point a lot of fingers at a lot of different directions. I mean, you could certainly look at the feds and some of the sentencing guidelines, the, the release guidelines, the bail guidelines for sure. I mean, we've heard lots of cases and problems like that. The other one is the mental health and drug addiction aspect of it. And you know, what do you do about that? What do you do about someone who is an offender who is just mentally ill? And this is what's going on and po and possibly drug addicted as well. You know, it, it's easy to it's easy to say, well, let's set up uh, a safe injection site or let's let's give people let's give people a safe supply of drugs when maybe what the other alternative is you need mental health services you need de you need rehab services to get people off drugs or to get or to get people mental health counseling your thoughts absolutely from my perspective the answer is not to put them back on the streets over and over again and i understand the movement to try and say well we can't deal with these people in in uh, through the criminal justice system but i'm sorry when it comes to violent offenders the answer isn't just everyone needs a hug. You know, I, I had an exchange with somebody. They said, well, you know, you have to have compassion. Where's the compassion for the victims? Where's the compassion for the person who's in Tim Hortons, mind their business, and ends up getting stabbed? Yeah, that individual who did it may have mental health issues. They may have a drug addiction. That's not a get-out-of-jail-free card. That shouldn't exempt them from being held accountable. You know, the trajectory of where we're going really worries me because it's like, well, the person has problems and so we can't do anything. You know, that, that's just nonsense. The people should be held accountable and they shouldn't be on the street. They should be somewhere, yes, getting the help that they need, but also <laughs> being held in, in jail. Yeah. There's also the consequences uh, for also, their actions. There's also the justice and, for victims involved here. Now, in this case, this is a strange one because the victim here was a tourist. This is a guy visiting from Mexico, and I'm just taking a look at his GoFundMe right now. And he writes out, and he put, he put up this heartbreaking photo of himself in a hospital bed. I mean, this guy almost died. He's lucky to be alive. So he writes on his GoFundMe, "I want to thank all the people who are concerned for me and have reached out. The damage was substantial." Yeah, he suffered a lot, really serious stab wounds. Very, very lucky to have survived here. He writes, I'm glad the guy is off the streets so he doesn't harm anybody else. I'm, unfortunately, I've been told there's no chance for compensation in my case. So please help me. And yeah. he's got nearly close to 500 donations and uh, nearly $15,000 has been donated to him. I'll put up the link on my uh, Twitter, by the way, if people want to check this out. But there's a photo of him, and he's he's written he's got a message in Spanish there as well as Mexic Mexican tourist. But you know your your thoughts on the vic uh, victims of crime and if if they're adequately compensated or thought of here. Well, it's the it's the victims who I'm most concerned about. I mean, I yeah. think we need way more focus on on the victims. There's there's a lot of focus right now on on the perpetrators, yeah. and they need to be dealt with. And I get there's some people who have challenges. 
and there needs to be, you know, efforts made in that regard. But they also need to be held criminally accountable, by the way, for their actions. It can't just be, oh, well, you know, uh, we're going to try and help you. No, you did something wrong. You almost killed someone, and you're going to be held accountable for that. But the victims are the people who I am primarily concerned about. And, you know, it's a pretty sad statement that in a situation like this, you, you then are left to the generosity of strangers to try and help you out. I mean, that to me is, is not a, that's not a great way to do business is everyone who gets hurt uh, or everyone who goes through something so traumatic like this individual, you have to do a GoFundMe. I mean, what does that say about where we're at? I mean, I just think about, you know, if any of us, you know, we've gone to a vacation somewhere uh, to another country and, you know, you're excited and you're looking around and, you know, maybe this is the first vacation you've ever had. Maybe you saved up for five or 10 years to be able to go on vacation and you're excited. And I, I just, you know, can't imagine to have something like that happen to you you know, when you're supposed to be having probably one of the best experiences uh, of your life. Um, So whether it's someone here on vacation or it's just one of our citizens, uh, this is not something that people should get used to. And that seems to be the attitude. Well, we have to get used to this. No, we need to put a stop to it. I agree with you. Mayor Brad West, thank you for coming on today. Thanks for having me, Mike. All right, welcome back to the show. And here we go now with our affordable housing panel. Now, we all know that the price of housing has gone through the roof and it's rising everywhere, even formerly affordable zones of the lower mainland like the Fraser Valley. Wow, prices really going up everywhere. The price of a home just skyrocketing beyond the affordability level for many, many people. How do we fix this? How do we get more homes built that people can actually afford? Now, we've talked about a lot of ideas on this on the show on the past few weeks, including uh, that one was re- that was recently proposed, a home equity tax on homes valued over a million dollars. Now, here's the idea on that. You have an expensive home like that. You pay an annual tax on that property. Use that money to build affordable housing. Have a listen to this. This is Sharon, uh, a caller to the show last week who was not happy about this idea. She's a homeowner. Have a listen to what she had to say. I'm absolutely furious that these people are saying it's now our responsibility to pay for other people so they can get into a home. We sacrifice. We did without. My husband worked 80 hours a week, and I'm sorry, but they just don't suck it up anymore. And that's how I feel, and I don't want any more taxes. Okay, so she doesn't want to, she doesn't want to pay for it. Well, what about Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart's idea of uh, more densification? You take some single-family home lots and uh, rezone them so you can build six uh, housing units on that same property. Would that fix the problem? So many other, so many ideas on the table. Let's discuss now. What a great panel we've got for you. Mark Lee, senior economist, Canadian Center for Policy Alternatives. I'm pleased to welcome him back to the show. Mark, thanks for coming on. Hi, good morning, Mike. Thanks for doing this. Also on the line is Paul Sullivan. Paul is a property tax and appraisal expert. He's with the Business Tax Alliance. Hey, Paul. Good morning. Thanks a lot to both of you guys for being here. Mark, let me go to you first. You were part of that UBC study that proposed the idea of that that equity tax. How do you respond to that caller who says, like, keep your hands off my home equity here? Well, I think what we've seen in the housing market is massive windfall gains to people who bought housing a long time ago. So how they might have bought in for a few hundred thousand dollars. Now their place is worth well over a million, in some cases pushing north of that. Uh, and so I think the idea of the tax is to simply say, look, you know, the, the increase in those land values is making uh, housing affordability it, like almost impossible for the younger generation. Uh, and what we need to do is to take some of that money and actually be able to build housing for people who need it, particularly non-market affordable rental housing so that we can have a diverse and robust city. Okay, Paul, what do you think of this idea, a home equity tax, and use that money to build to build affordable housing? Well, you know, I just got to say it's laughable. You know, we, we've learned over the past several years that taxation is not the answer. Even Minister Eby has very clearly stated that no more taxation is coming forth because it's not solving the problem. You know, taxes don't build houses. Home builders build houses. Homes get built when they get approved. And we have labor to get them built. 
You can create affordability in structures through incentive programs such as the CMHC has done in creating low-cost financing for affordable rental housing. So the feds are on board, the province is on board, the problem is with the municipalities, and I'd be happy to comment on that. Okay, so when you say the problem is with the municipalities, you mean like what, the slow, the slow pace of building approvals and all the red tape, or what? It, it's shocking to me that we have a declining rate of approvals of homes in the city of Vancouver. I'm talking about development permit and building permit approvals. We have a decline in them. And I'm not talking about high-rises and complicated projects that take five or seven years for this city to approve. I'm talking about townhouses, row housing, apartment buildings. They're improving less per quarter over the past year. Now, I think the other issue, and and one that I find really uh, critical here, is Kennedy Stewart telling me that he needs to densify single-family neighbourhoods without talking about the economics and telling me that he's going to charge fees to increase density in single-family neighbourhoods. You know who the biggest property owner is in, the, in our jurisdiction? It's the municipalities. And the city of yeah. Vancouver is sitting on masses of land, yet they are the biggest hoarders of, of, of the opportunity to, to grow housing. It's okay. time to get housing built on city land. Okay, well, speaking of Kennedy Stewart and his densification idea, let's listen to a clip of the Vancouver mayor here on this point. Now, the idea is you rezone some single-family lots and you build like six homes on the same lot. Have a listen to this. Kennedy Stewart speaking to Jazz Johal. So those single detached homes that are worth $2 million on average that nobody can, you know, think about buying essentially replaces those with uh, six, you know, up to six units that would cost between six hundred and $800,000 around the price of a, of a condo. Okay, Mark Lee, what do you think of that idea? Well, I think this overall conversation around upzoning of single-family, well, what used to be single-family, but detached housing neighbourhoods and having more dense housing options, row houses, townhouses, all the way up to small apartments, that's exactly the right conversation we should be having. Right now in Vancouver, we have about... Um, you know, 80% of the land taken up by 30% of the population. Uh, and we need to open that up because the city is going to grow. Uh, what the mayor's proposing, I think, is, is fairly modest. Uh, it's a, really a pilot of about 2,000 homes. They're still just asking staff to give direction on the parameters of that. But I think it's, it's moving in the right direction. Okay, Paul Sullivan, what do you think of that? Well, I mean, not only does six, six units on a single-family property understate the problem and will come nowhere close to a solution... I, there is not a home builder in our town that wants to go down the labyrinth of trying to get an approval on a new policy on home building in Vancouver when it already takes years to get a permit. So that ain't going to work. Look, we've got 140,000 temporary workers coming into BC every single year. We've got 50,000 new immigrants in the, this year alone with probably a pent-up demand of another 100,000. We need hundreds of thousands of homes. We have the lowest home supply per capita of every G7 country in the world. Wow. Mark Lee, your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think I agree with Paul on on some of that for sure. I mean, we have not actually been building as much housing relative to population as we did in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Uh, And I think we're both critical of the current processes where it's uh, a rezoning process that has to go to a city council, and then there's negotiated community amenity contributions, which add a lot of uncertainty. So I think the idea behind the mayor's proposal, even though it's a limited pilot, is we want this to be much more broad-based, so you don't have to go to rezoning each time. You just allow more density uh, in all of those different sites. Uh, and then you could have six units. In fact, you could have more units uh, and, and more density on site to make the economics better. Speaking to Mark Lee and Paul Sullivan about housing affordability in Metro Vancouver. Hey, Paul, when you were speaking earlier about the frustration with the slow pace of approvals at the municipal level for zone, for uh, building new homes and all the red tape, how do you get around that? I mean, do you need the, the provincial government to step in there with a hammer and say, look, enough of this foot dragging and all this red tape and and uh, nimbyism and people opposing densification. Look, we got to build more stuff that people can afford, and we're going to force you to do it. That's right. We have capital yeah. incentive programs. Everybody needs transportation, infrastructure, and those those financings come from the federal government. And if you're not meeting the housing requirements, I mean, that's, that's the, Metro Vancouver, every municipality except for the city of North Vancouver is 
undershot their own projections of housing supply. We're not even meeting our own expectations. So, yeah, we need some sticks to, to, to get municipalities to get moving here. And having a declining rate of approvals in this day and age is unacceptable. Yeah. Mark Lee, do you agree? Yeah, I, mean, I think there's a lot that we uh, agree about. I think there's some differences on the demand side of the equation and, and taxes. Uh, I think that uh, there's a lot of investor behavior in the market, which is making it hard for first-time home buyers to get into the market, and we should be clamping down on that the way New Zealand and Singapore do, for example. But, yeah, there are some real issues in terms of the rezoning processes at, at cities and the amount of time that it takes up and how much that delays projects. So that's completely legit. Hey, Paul, what do you... Go ahead, Paul. How are taxes going to make homes get built? Home builders build homes. They get built when they're approved. There is unbelievable amount of appetite to build homes right now. Taxing people is not the solution. You're taxing people that are trying to afford the homes they live in. And taxing people with $1 million homes is even you know, worse. How are you going to get homes built? Yeah, sure, Paul, but we live in a world where there are regulations and there are taxes and they shape the market and they shape people's incentives. Right now, we have huge uh, untaxed gains uh, that accrue to people with principal residences, and that means it's really unfair to renters. So we're trying to level the playing field so that we have a more affordable housing situation overall. Paul, speak of renters. We have the highest rental rates in the country. They're increasing faster than any other province. And taxing homeowners is not going to solve renters' problems. Building rental. All we're asking is that people who've made hundreds of thousands of dollars in untaxed gains contribute a little bit back so that we can have affordable housing for the next generation. I don't think it's that much to ask people who've made vast, vast profits off of real estate applications in the system to build rental homes right now they're not getting we can do both we can do both of those things paul we agree on the supply side and we disagree on the demand side nobody stands for taxation you are the only one left the fed said no the province said no david eby said no the city is hoarding land let's get some homes built on city land All right, welcome back as we continue talking affordable housing with my guests, Mark Lee and Paul Sullivan. Lots of calls on this one. Andrew in North Vancouver. Hi, Andrew, go ahead. Hey, Mike, love the show. Um, I just want to make a couple quick quick points, gentlemen. Why are we not talking about the truth here, okay? We we had a lady call in earlier, talked about her husband working 80 hours a week to be able to afford a home in Vancouver back in the day. My mother-in-law, single mom raising multiple girls, working three jobs back in the day. Today, we've got proof from people like Sam Cooper who've gone out there and proved that the the housing market inflation is created by drugs, drug money, foreign money that's that's inflating our market. Why are we taxing the citizens and the people who work their butts off every day to be able to afford a home in the city of Vancouver instead of, yes, going after uh, city-owned property, going after uh, the the, the causes of the inflation versus more tax, more tax. Okay, Okay. Mark Mark Lee, what do you say to that? Well, I mean, we want to keep a lid on the land price inflation that we've seen. I don't think it's uh, reasonable that uh, the expectation that's become built in that that, uh, house prices are just to go up double digits year after year after year. Uh, And what that's done is it's given a lot of wealth to people who bought in uh, a long time ago. And, uh, you know, taxation is one way that we can ensure that there's housing built for the next generation. And it also puts a lid on the on the property price. What about what what about his argument, though, around money laundering and, and offshore money distorting the market? Do you think that's going on? Oh, there's definitely some offshore money that's been flowing into this. I've read Sam Cooper's book, and there's some very compelling evidence of that. So we should certainly be going after um, money laundering. And I think we should have a situation where we have you know, more uh, bigger speed bumps for external capital, whether it's uh, you know, Chinese or Russian or Toronto or Calgary money that's inflating our market. So we should be dealing with the demand side of the market through those types of measures through uh, challenging investors, like I mentioned before. And we also need to deal with the supply side, like we talked about earlier. So it's okay. not just one magic bullet we can have for the housing situation. Okay, pa- Paul Sullivan, do you want to weigh in on that? Uh, I mean, I just can't help but to, to bring up the political rhetoric that uh, people like Mark and, and Paul Kershaw particularly are introducing into this issue and saying that homeowners are lazy and they're doing nothing and they're sitting on the couch waiting for their home values to go up and make money. 
I mean, it's a disgraceful, divisive approach to a housing affordability issue, and it's got to stop. We need to build homes. We don't need to make life less affordable for the residents in our cities by adding taxes. This is not their fault. It is not their problem. Government can solve this problem through freeing up land and creating incentives to get density built, get infrastructure put in from federal government, and it's only going to come with density. Let's fit in another call here. Brent and Delta. Brent, go ahead. Yeah, good morning, Mike. Um, the horse has left the barn on this, people. Uh, government's clearly dropped the ball earlier. It's not up to us as homeowners to help them. We're already taxed to death. Uh, keep in mind, while values have gone up substantially, most of us have spent the last 25 years trying to pay our mortgages off. Uh, even if even if this did go ahead, I absolutely do not support it. I have zero confidence whatsoever that any funds taxed from this uh from this, we'll go into gen- it'll go into general revenue. We'll never know where the money goes to. Okay. Uh, more density, quicker developments, quicker building permits. That's where government can start to have some positive changes. Okay. This is not so- the solution. Find another way. Thanks for the call. We're running out of time, guys. So let me just give you an opportunity to both of you to wrap up. Mark, you want to respond to that caller and just make your final points? Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I bought a house in 2001 and uh, got rid of it uh, 20 years later, and it was worth six times what I paid for it. I didn't have to pay any tax on that on that gain, and I would gladly pay a small percentage of that in tax if it made sure that it can provide affordable housing for my daughter, who now is like essentially locked out of the market uh, until I die and pass on that windfall to her. So we've created a situation where the, the house prices have gone to such extreme lengths uh, and raising property taxes is one way of addressing that. Okay, Paul Sullivan, your final thoughts. Well, I mean, the, the, there's no support for more taxation on homeowners. You know, 26% of the cost of a home is taxation. Taxation is the most identifiable and largest increase in the cost of providing housing right now. It's not the answer. Let's get some homes built. Gentlemen, I want to thank both of you for coming on today and for an excellent discussion. I appreciate it. Thanks, Mike. Thank you. All right. Welcome back to the show. And here we go now with the deadly violence in Mexico. And everybody knows about the brutal drug cartel wars raging across Mexico. The death count is astronomical. Now, I love Mexico. I've done several vacations there. I had a great time every time, mostly around Puerto Vallarta. I love the country. I love the people. And every time you go there, they always tell you, don't worry. Don't worry about the cartels. The tourist areas are safe. Your resort is safe. Tourism is a billion-dollar business in Mexico. The cartels have no interest in destroying that. But check out the headlines from last week. Bullets flying at one of Mexico's most popular resorts. Very popular with Canadians. Two Canadians shot dead at a Mexico resort last week. Have a listen to this report from Global News reporter Mike LeCouture. Webcam images capture what was nearly a picture-perfect day at the Mexican resort. Five bangs believed to be gunshots ring out. This video appears to show the scene afterwards with three bodies laying on the floor in an eating area. Definitely a shock that it happened in a resort. Canadian travel advisor Lori Gold lives 10 minutes from the resort. And while she was surprised, she doesn't feel less safe. You know, people have to realize that life is still life, even in paradise. But typically it does not affect uh, tourists at all. It is not anywhere near tourism. It is really super targeted. Local police claim the shooting was linked to organized crime. Reports say two men are dead while one woman is in hospital. All three are believed to be Canadian. The gunman seen in this photo released by the local Secretary of Public Security is still on the loose. Okay, okay, two Canadians shot dead at that Mexican resort last week. Mexico police say they were mixed up in drugs and weapons trafficking. Let's discuss now with my guest, Emmanuel Gallardo. He is a Mexican journalist now based in Canada, and I'm very pleased to welcome him to the show. Emmanuel, thank you very much for coming on today. Hello, Mike. Thank you very much for having me today. I appreciate your time. And Emmanuel, let me start with, uh, you have a very personal and fascinating personal story yourself. Can you tell me, like, you you are a refugee in Canada, right? Because you were, you, were you working as a journalist in Mexico and you felt unsafe you came to Canada? Is that correct? Uh, yes. Uh, 
I am a displaced uh, journalist. And uh, yes, it's because the coverage that I made in Mexico regarding uh, the specific uh, problem about organized crime in Mexico City. But yes. Yeah, so you were writing about the cartels there and what, you received some threats there? Is that correct? Uh, I, I'm writing a book about the assassination of two individuals, which is pretty similar to what happened in Cancun. It's uh, two foreigners, two people that came from other countries, and uh, they got killed in Mexico back in 2019. And, uh, yeah, they ended up being uh, big numbers of the Israeli mafia. And it's pretty similar to the case that is happening right now in Cancun, Mexico. Uh, I was listening to the report that you just played, and, and yes, you're right, this was a, a targeted uh, attack to two specific people. Yeah. The, uh, it's the state prosecutor in English, the Fiscal General in, of the Quintana Roo, mentioned about uh, that these two uh, Canadians were part of, the, of a criminal organization. They have a criminal background. So for Canadians, if Canadian, uh, Canadians wants to go to Mexico to enjoy uh, the beaches and the resorts, they, they can do it. I yeah. talked to two sources yesterday and they were telling me no we are not waiting for it for uh people here with guns or something like that we want tourism because we live up that so it's safe we have two parallel worlds here one world for tourism another world for you know that other kind of tourism that involves drugs that involves some other kind of uh things that go beyond the law you don't want to go there Speaking to Emmanuel Gallardo, he's a Mexican crime reporter now based in Canada. And yeah, so when people go to Mexico, they we're always told what you just said there, Emmanuel. If you're going to the tourist zones, you're going to be safe. It's it's going to be okay. Like I often I once heard that the cartels, the drug cartels in Mexico, actually have a financial stake in a lot of these resorts. And that's one of the reasons why they, they don't want to upset the tourism business because the, the cartels actually have an economic interest in seeing them continue. Is that true? Well, if you consider that a lot of tourism, that international local tourism that go to uh, the Riviera Maya region, sometimes when they go, they are looking to have fun, but in a wild way. And it's not a secret, Cancun and that area, it's a drug paradise. We have three criminal groups uh, operating in the region. And if it's about drugs, if it's about uh, criminal activities, well, they're going to be, uh, they, they have presence. So if you want to go there and look for something that it's not a regular vacation, you may get in trouble. Oh, okay. So let's say, let's say you're a Canadian, you decide to go on vacation in Cancun. And, you know, you might, some, a person might say, I'm going to go out and try and buy some cocaine uh, or something like that. I might try to buy drugs. Would you say that's a dangerous activity in Mexico? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a parallel world. They live together. You know, it's the, the tourism world where you can go and have fun, like I said, with your family and enjoying Shkaret or enjoying all the nature of beauties that we have in my country. But if you want to try to have some other kind of a fun, like you said, trying to find cocaine, or if you want to get adventurous and try to go at two in the morning to a bar and, you know, to try to have another kind of fun, you're, that's the door to access to such a different world where the regular rules in a society don't apply at all. So if you guys, I mean, kids that are listening to your show, because I know that a lot of people listen to your show, I mean, you can go, you can enjoy everything there, but don't try to do something that in the end you're going to regret. And it's, yeah. you know, something that, you know, getting drugs or something like that. I think that's some good advice. Speaking to Emmanuel Gallardo, he's a Mexican crime reporter. Emmanuel, what would you say about the situation on the ground in Mexico today right now in terms of the cartels and the drug wars? It sounds like it's expanded exponentially, like the number of different cartels, different groups, different criminal organizations has expanded, and, and the war sounds absolutely brutal. How would you, how would you uh, describe it? Yes, it's a war between criminal organizations. Uh, it's a war 
not just for uh, the control of the drug routes or, you know, drug trafficking. There's more things beyond that narrative that uh, it's very popular now in, in these days because all the shows that we can see that it's pretty romantic sometimes and exciting. But behind that, there's a human right crisis. There's uh, people that are being displaced from their homes, from their towns because of the war between these criminal organizations. And we have to consider the corruption level in the judicial system that uh, does not allow you to go to file a complaint to a police, uh, to the police, because maybe you were a victim of a crime and and in a regular situation, you just go file your complaint. But you never know in Mexico, in certain towns, regions, if that cop that you're talking to, it's part of the criminal organization, the local criminal organization, and in the end, we're going to regret to talk to those guys. That's the reason that we have something that is called the black number, La Cifra Negra. All those crimes that are not reported because people are afraid, and they are not considering the statistics. So it's, it's really tough. All right, welcome back to the show as we continue talking about crime in Mexico with my guest, investigative reporter Emmanuel Gallardo. Okay, Emmanuel, let's go back to the shootings of those Canadians last week in Mexico and Mexican officials uh, saying uh, these people, the people who were killed here had criminal records here in Canada and the Mexican officials saying they they were mixed up in some sort of some sort of debt being settled between international gangs. Is that your understanding of it? Like, what do you know about what happened here? Well, yeah, they, it's, uh, the state prosecutor said that the attack was planned here in Canada and was carried out by uh, Mexican hitmen. So uh, we have to consider that uh, uh, drug trafficking, it's, it's a problem that uh, it's not only from one certain part in, in, in the continent. So we're talking about that it's, it's broad. It goes from Mexico to uh, the U.S. and then to Canada. We have to remember as well that uh, Justin, it was a year ago in Toronto, seized a lot of uh, a cargo full of, uh, of drugs. So, uh, well, also something that it's important to consider is that now we have two people in Mexico that got arrested. Also, RCMP, DEA, and the FBI within the next couple of weeks are going to go to Mexico to contribute with the investigations. And we're going to know more, I guess, within the next couple of weeks because right now the investigation is pretty fresh. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about the, the reach of these Mexican cartels, Emmanuel. We all know about the drug wars, the cartel wars that are raging across that that country. Do they reach, do their influence reach into Canada? Well, yeah, there's uh, there's journalistic reports that uh, identify the Sinaloa cartel that has presence in the east of Canada uh, with a solid control of the uh, cocaine uh, market. Also, uh, the other criminal organization, which is the Arellano Felix, that uh, have uh, a lot of influence in, in Vancouver, in some rural parts of Alberta. But the clue here is, or the key here is that uh, they, they're not going to be violent, okay? Because in Canada, you cannot do that, okay? It's very low-pro. Uh, local gangs, are going to be working with the Mexican beef criminal organizations. But yes, there's, there's a presence of Canadian criminals dealing with uh, Mexican organized crime uh, beef members. Do a lot of the drugs in Canada, I mean, we often hear about the fentanyl supply that's causing so many deaths here in British Columbia, and it's often, it's often said that China is the source of some of this, fent- this fentanyl that comes in. What about like other hard drugs you mentioned, like cocaine, heroin? Does a lot of that come from Mexico? Uh, it's pretty much cocaine, heroin, and crystal meth. Yeah, yeah. How do they? How do they get? How do they get? How do they get the drugs into the country? Well, this uh, what happened in Toronto uh, back in June twenty twenty one. Well, the investigation showed that the cargo 
was uh, originated from Mexico, then to the U.S., to California, and then from California with trucks uh, to Canada. They arrested a guy who uh, uh, was a 43-year-old. His name, his name is Jason Hall. He was the, the AKA the trap maker. He was responsible to build those compartments, uh, secret compartments where the drug was transported. And it's important to mention that uh, even when these come from the Mexican uh, organization, after the seize and the uh, arrest of all these people that were involved, well, not even one Mexican was arrested. So that shows that the connection between the Canadian uh, criminal or, or, uh, organizations and the Mexican organizations as well. Emmanuel, I'm looking forward to returning to Mexico one of these days, I hope soon, when these travel advisories are hopefully lifted. Lots of people are traveling to Mexico anyway, despite the travel advisories in place. Canadians love Mexico, especially a lot of people here in, in British Columbia. Are, are the, yes. the tourist areas, a lot of people here love Puerto Vallarta on, on this side of the coast. But people love the, uh, the Cancun area too, right? Like, are all those areas safe or are there any tourist areas that have been infiltrated more by some of this violence? Well, in Puerto Vallarta, it's another criminal group. It's El Cartel Jalisco Nueva Generación. It's, an, it's a different group. It's uh, really violent. It has presence in a lot of the states, pretty much 25, 26 states in Mexico out of the 30 that we have. So, uh, but again, if you go to Puerto Vallarta, just enjoy it, enjoy the resort, you are safe, okay? Yeah. Yeah. But um, a journalist yesterday that I was talking to her, she told me, it's like, if you're asking me, if you guys, if you come here to have a holiday, uh, it's like in the U.S., you never know when it's going to be a, 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 an attack or a firefight in, in a school, you know, that kind of, of, of thing. It's, it's the comparison. But what I can tell you is that uh, you, as a regular tourist, your uh, audience, can go to Mexico. You can enjoy, like I said before, you, their resorts, the, the, all the beauty that we have in Mexico. But just don't try to go beyond to that parallel world yeah. that, because it's, it's nasty. You don't want to get in trouble. You don't want to get traumatized. Your families, your children, even the kids that are listening to this, I mean, don't try to get adventurous. Don't try to get wild. I mean, there's a lot of, of ways to have fun. And okay. just don't go. Emmanuel, it's been, it's been awesome to speak to you today. I think you're a very courageous guy uh, reporting on these issues, and I appreciate your time. Thanks for coming on today. I appreciate it, Mike. You have a great day.